Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show that's coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hey, everybody, welcome. I want to welcome you to the Dr. Pat Show. This is Talk Radio to Thrive By. I want to just tell everybody, you know, I love doing what I do. I I mean, I've just spent a couple of hours earlier today, you know, talking about what it means to rethink the idea of depression. Now I get to talk with, you know, one of the leading experts on how to get real-life advice for parents of teens, but more importantly, how to really get in, under, around, and about what is going on for today's teenagers and for today's parents of those teenagers. And, you know, someone said to me a long time ago, based on my teen years, they said, you know, someday, someday you're going to look back at the crazy teenager that you were And what you're going to discover is you're going to discover that you're looking at it in a whole different way. You're not going to be able to justify your crazy behavior when you are growing up. You're going to have a whole different aspect of life to look back on. So here's what I want to say about that. Thank goodness I don't have to do that. But thank goodness Dr. Wes Crenshaw is doing that. Thanks to him, we are getting the inside scoop on what a lot of us think, but most of us don't know how to handle. And that is getting the real life advice for parents of teens. And, you know, most importantly, to really get to a place of understanding the dynamic that is going on in today's world. And as I said before, Dr. Wes Crenshaw joining me here today, you know, he is someone that has been on the airwaves. He gives us a very, very fresh perspective, you know, but more importantly, what he's here to do is to make sure that we understand the multidimensional aspects of what's going on today in the world that teenagers live in, but also what the heck has happened to parents. And I say that, honestly say that with a lot of compassion and empathy coming from that place myself. He's joining me here today, incredible author. I've got his book in front of me, co-authored the Double Take Advice column for teenagers and their parents. He's joining me here today uh, to really take on the conversation of his latest book, uh, Dear Dr. West, Real Life Advice for Parents of Teens. Dr. West, welcome to the Dr. Pacho. It's great to have you here. Nice to be here with you tonight. So it's really a good good thing. I mean, I think about um, how pivotal the conversations are that you have in your columns and, and, you know, the dialogue that goes on between yourself and parents and teens and some of the, the most insightful, insightful information that is in your book. I mean, you've got things written in here that I don't know that most people even know how to begin a conversation on. And I'm telling you, it is 
amazing. So thank you for doing what you do. Well, it's nice of you to say, and I have to, I have to, to always uh, point out that half the book is written by teenagers. So I think uh, sometimes their thoughts are more insightful than mine. But I think it works pretty well together. I, I actually love how candid the teens are and some of the things that they've said, some of the questions that get that get asked. Because, you know, you really are uh, taking on some of the tough conversations. I've got a couple of questions that have already come in uh, to sure. us from, uh, you, know, te- you know, from parents and teenagers that knew we were going to do this show today. Some of them apparently are familiar with your column. Well, hopefully we like to get it out there. It gets republished all over the world on different blog sites after it comes out on the paper on Mondays. So I love that. I love that. One of the questions we asked, we said, what is the most pressing issue for you right now? What is the most pressing issue for you right now as parents? Here's what they came back and said, and they wanted me to ask you about. They said, you know... We just don't know how to communicate anymore. And I thought, let's start the conversation out with that. Is it communication or does it go way deeper than that? Well, I, I think that communication is always an issue, but it's uh, it's probably no different today than it's been at other times. We worry a great deal, and I think legitimately, about how communication has changed with Facebook and Twitter and email and text and all that. And there are some, some uh, obstacles that that creates for the good face-to-face communication that we want to have. But but folks have been worried about the you know generation gap and the communication issues between parents and teens ever since we acknowledged adolescence as a distinct part of life, which was probably in the 40s or 50s. So yeah, it it continues to be an issue because by by the necessity, we are in different cultures as adults than teens, and we have different tasks. Teenagers' job is to do teenage things, which is to differentiate themselves from their parents. And parents are supposed to do parent things, which is to try to keep kids in some some kind of channel of the same values that we have and want to pass on to them. And so those things have to compete with each other. And a lot of times, the, what we perceive as being poor communication between the generations is really just kids and parents hearing what's said but not liking it, not wanting to agree with it. You know, I, I was talking to one of our, our, our listeners on my early show today, and, you know, he's a, he's a grandfather. And he said, you know, everybody's talking about technology, technology, technology. And, you know, we were kind of chit-chatting on air for a little bit. And I said, well, you know, didn't you have technology when you were growing up? Exactly. And I, and he, you're going to laugh about this. He said, here's the technology I had when I was growing up. How to get my eight track player unstuck <laughs> from itself. And I'm sure most of the people listening to the show didn't even understand what he was talking about. <laughs> I, I am familiar with it. I, I jumped over uh, eight tracks and went straight to cassettes, but all my friends <laughs> had eight tracks. So I know exactly what he's talking about. And, and I think, I think that the, the only problem with that, I think you asked exactly the right question. And the problem is he is sort of imagining like we all do that there was this, you know, this simpler time and, and, uh, we didn't have to deal with all these things. It certainly there's more ways to communicate now. Um, but we all had telephones and we all liked to 
to talk on them with people, particularly our dating partners we like to talk to. And so, you know, we had rules about that, and uh, parents turned the phone off or took it out of your room or pulled the plug or whatever at 9.30 at night. And that's no different than what we deal with today. It's really that a lot of folks, a lot of parents have a hard time showing the willpower to turn that phone off when in fact it's pretty, it's actually easier to do than it was when we were kids. So the technology is different. It's a different box, but the ethics that go along with it haven't changed nearly that much. Well, you know, it's kind of also interesting, too, that, um, uh, you know, I think we really blame teenagers a lot these days for things. And I got to tell you, I was in the I, I was in the Jiffy Lube place getting my oil changed in my car. And in comes a mom with her had to be like eight year old son. And he had this book to read and she had her cell phone and she was playing on her cell phone. And he was dying to have a conversation with her. And honestly, for the 45 minutes we sat there, she did not put down the phone. So how can we, how can we, Dr. West, how can we scold our teenagers, try to corral them around this technology when we're kind of not really, you know, living by an example? You see what I'm saying? Sure, and this is true across the board. We you never can expect kids and teenagers to have better behavior than their parents do. And so, you know, phones are awful interesting to us, and I, I love mine too, and, it, you know, it synchronizes with my calendar, and it tells me to be on your show tonight so that I know that that's what I'm supposed to do. And I have my Twitter feed. I hope everyone listening follows me on Twitter. I have lots of good parenting advice that comes out uh, on there in 140 characters. So we're all tied up uh, with that technology. And the question is, do we use it to enhance our lives or do we let it control us? And this is a trick every day of the week. It does all those neat things that I just said, but it also makes it easy to pay attention to that when you probably should be paying attention to the kids. And I've seen the exact uh, example that you're we're talking about a Jiffy Lube many times. I've probably participated in that myself a few times. So I don't mean Jiffy Lube. I mean the, the technology part. And and we just have to really tell ourselves to turn that switch off. It requires us to you know use our big brains and override some of our inclinations. And kids are pretty interesting if we let them be. Uh, they're probably more interesting than Twitter. Very interesting conversations. You know, there is so much in your book. I mean, uh, for those of you just tuning in, Dr. Wes Crenshaw joining me here today. Dear Dr. Wes, real life advice for parents of teens. You know, a lot of what's, what's in this book, um, a lot of what you've captured and what the teens have contributed is so much of what we're seeing in our pop culture, on television shows, some of these issues. One of them in particular has to do with privacy. And recently, a television show did a whole hour. I can't even remember what the show was, but it was around whether or not parents had the right to go in and look at uh, their child, their son's Facebook account or their son's Twitter account. Uh, and, and this seems to be a, a real sore spot for families. How does one reconcile that? Well, the... Uh We've been watching this and doing stories on it for years now. The Double Take uh, newspaper column came out in 2004, and uh, its first co-author, 
uh, teen co-authors started that year. And so we have really moved from an era when instant messenger was uh, popular and a thing called Zanga that nobody remembers anymore that was uh, the precursor of Facebook. So we've really watched this. We were talking about uh, people texting uh, or sexting pictures inappropriate pictures before we had a term sexting to talk about. So we really try to stay on top uh, of a lot of that. And the the technology um, issues or the, the sort of new wave things, are they move faster sometimes, I think, than our ethical uh, frameworks allow us to respond. And that's what we've really tried to address in the column over the years is how parents and kids uh, are, are able to sort of stay ahead of that or have that conversation stay ahead of it. You know, one of the questions, um, in, you know, that comes up, and this came in today, a question that came up had to do with, okay, Dr. West, here we are. We're talking about kids. We're talking about parents. Ha- has anything really changed, you know, in 20, 30 years? Uh, and, I, and I understand their question in that way. And so I, I want to ask you. Sure. I, and this is, uh, parents ask me the same question all the time. Uh-huh. It, there are a lot of changes. Now, there are the core things. There's a reason why both of our books, that, that, if you count the pages, and I'm sure you have counted every page, uh, 33% of the books, both books, the one for teens and the one for parents, is about love and sex. And uh, you're you probably remember those were pretty popular topics when we were teenagers. No um, kidding. What's yeah? What that hasn't changed. The way that they interact and date, just like the phone has changed in technology, so has the dating technology changed. And so things are different. It, you know, I, and I think it's troubling. But uh, uh, sexual relationships in our current uh, world for teenagers, it really exists around about two and a half models. And one of those is the hookup model, which is very, very popular. And that is the model where kids are sexually involved with each other without any real benefit of relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are very casual uh, relationships. And then there is what I call the radical monogamy group. And those are the ones that are kind of the reaction to that, where they almost have these little marriages as teenagers. Then you have the friends with benefits uh, group, which has become popular in the media lately to sort of follow and study recent movie about that that's uh, not too bad. And so this is a change. It is a significant change. We've always had kids that were sexually active uh, back as long as we've had history. But we do see a, a cultural change where that and it's reflected in the media and I think also influenced by the media where those relationships are no longer uh, – they're a little more disposable, let's put it that way. You know, I, I, I think that, you, you know, you're right. I mean, the language has changed uh, quite a bit. And also the access for information um, has changed quite a bit in, in that it's everywhere, isn't it? Uh, True. Yeah. I, just about anything that you ever wanted to know about anything, whether what's out there is true or not <laughs> – is available to you. You know, one of the things that I was reading is that you say that, that pretty much everything about parenting can be summed up in one word, and I was so curious about what that was. Well, that word is influence. And, mm. the, the, you know, you're talking, it's a good example, you're talking about the Jiffy Lube thing where yeah. that parent is sort of disengaged. If you broaden that up to a, a sort of societal metaphor, 
which is exactly I think where you were headed with that. You you uh, you find that a lot of parents by the time their kids are teenagers, have either thrown up their hands and said, oh, you know, I've done all I can do, they're on their own now, or they sort of uh, believe that they they can't do anything to change the teenager, and so they, they sort of give up. And the research is very clear that uh, this is not true, that, that pe- people way overemphasize the importance of the peer group or what's called peer pressure compared mm-hmm. to the parent influences. And when you really study what's called a longitudinal study, a long-term study, you find that adults end up resembling their parents in terms of values and behaviors and what they do than far more than they resemble their peer group. Adolescence is a period of change and a period of differentiation, but in the end, you tend to come back to what you learned at home. So parents have to remain uh, influential during that time and have to know that they're influential, and of course, that means they need to keep that influence as helpful as possible, because just like good influence helps us uh, along, bad influences will come back to bite you. Uh, in your 20s. And parents, that's the, the big word. Parents forget that they are that influential. I see it every week, two or three times a week. You know, the, the topic of the title for today's show that, that uh, was presented here is, Help Me, I Hate My Teenager. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> that's uh, that a militant there, is it? And I, I've run into that problem in my office. Oh. I have to ask you about this because, you know, I remember growing up as a teenager, and I can't tell you how many times my mom would just yell across, you know, an entire block. I grew up in the Bronx. I hate you. You imagine this in like an Italian family, right? So in that respect, I don't guess that's changed very much. Well, I think people are, you know, they do get frustrated with their teenagers. I like what you said earlier, though, when you said that we, we tend to blame teenagers for a lot of things, and I, I think that's true. They're, they're good, uh, good, good scapegoats for our frustration a lot of the time. But they're also really, you know, I wouldn't work with them for the, I don't know, 20,000 hours I have over the last 19 years if I didn't think they were awfully interesting and, and uh, amazing people. And they have a lot to give us. It's just that because of that tension I was talking about earlier between the the differentiation and the uh, the desire for parents to convey values, that that's going to get really annoying uh, a lot of the time. And kids and parents have to to learn a big lesson about that. And it's the hard, it's really a core lesson of all adolescent parent interaction, and that is not to take stuff personally. Uh, it's very hard. I, I probably advise people to not take this or that personally about 15 times a week. Uh, it's pretty it's pretty difficult to do. It's easy for me to sit in this chair and say it, but it's harder to do. Well, you know it is. I mean, some of this, and let me just put this in terms of what my 93-year-old uncle said to me uh, a while back. Uh, really outspoken guy. I think you'd love him. Uh, and he said to me, what happened to you? He's Italian. What happened to you? I said, what are you talking about, Uncle Al? What happened to you? You were such an interesting teenager. You were such an interesting <laughs> kid. He said a couple of Italian words, which I can't say. What happened to you? And I really thought about that um, and had to kind of reflect. But are these teenage years our most creative years, Wes? I, you know, I, I just want to ask you. I mean, is there any... Is there any meat on the bones to what my uncle Al said to me? 
Well, I think it's lovely. I mean, I think, you know, he's he in some ways he may be pining away for his own his yeah. own adolescence and mentioning that to you. But but sure, this is the, I, I got to say it's a lot more fun for us to sit here and look back and think, oh, you know, what a what beautiful years those are. One of my favorite letters and it's in the book. I don't remember. I think it's in the uh, yeah, it's in the teen book. We have a book for teens too. And a girl writes in and she says, "Dear Dr. West, um uh, my mother tells me that these are the best years of my life, that I should cherish these years." And she says, "If these are the best years of my life, I don't think I want to live to see the rest." <laughs> and I and I thought, you know, we wrote, we sent, we published that letter, and we responded to it. And what I told her was, "Don't judge the rest of your life by how you feel in your teen years. That this is a time of great upheaval. I would agree, it is a time of great creativity. It's sort of the best of times and the worst of times. And so when you're in it, it's not nearly as quaint and romantic." as we look back and imagine it. And so I I always warn parents not to romanticize those years with their teenager, that that's a whole lot more about us with our age looking back and sort of pining and wishing for something that probably wasn't really as neat as we think it was in <laughs> retrospect. It was not American graffiti, you know. So. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, I said to my uncle, quite honestly, I said, you know what, Uncle Al, you must be remembering those years in a way that I certainly don't didn't experience them. Uh, because honestly, I think back about my teen years, and they were extremely stressful in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. One of the stories in the book, um, actually uh, really struck a chord, and it probably in light of a, another show I did today um, on um, rethinking depression and, you know, had that conversation today. But there's a letter in the book about pathological lying. Oh, yes. uh, yeah. Yeah, th- this, this one. And, and what I was struck, can I tell you what I was struck by by the letter? Sure. Is It seems like the tone of the letter, maybe you can help me, has pathological lying associated with ADD or ADHD? I actually don't know the correlation between those two things. Well, I think, if I remember, I don't know that it's the letter. I think it uh-huh. is in our response, and I okay. and I absolutely can talk about that. Well, Please. the problem is there isn't really anything diagnostically called pathological lying. If you, if you, it's a kind of a common term, it's kind of a pop psychology term. But but if you take it literally, what it's saying is that the person lies uh, even if it's unhelpful because people who lie normally lie to help their cause. So if you're a criminal, if you have what we call an antisocial personality, then you lie purposefully in order to trick and manipulate people. Well, theoretically, there are these people, these pathological liars out there who lie for no good reason, or we have also called it crazy lying. That's one of the terms you see in some of the literature. Well, wholly apart from this, amongst people who have ADHD, and there's a whole kind of personality that goes along with that. I just had, I was just visiting with somebody today about this, that, that because part of, and this goes into like a three-hour show, so I'm going to give you this super <laughs> short, part. Amongst people who struggle with that, they have a very hard time being uncomfortable. It's very difficult to, to because being uncomfortable requires frustration tolerance, and that's not 
on the ADD people's menu. So they will tend to do what it takes to reduce conflict without really solving the conflict. And at the top of the list of neat things to do is to lie. So if you say, "What? I know you took the cookies from the cookie jar, it's uncomfortable to say, you're right, I did that, Let's let, let me have you punish me, and we'll take care of that. Now, of course, everybody is going to want to deny the the cookies, but some people, people who lean toward the more anxious side, just lean. They don't have to have the disorder. They will be conscientious, and they'll say, yes, you know, you caught me, um, and they'll give up. The people who lean, the farther the people lean to the ADD side, the more quickly they will come up with a lie. And if you have a video camera of them taking the cookies, they will say, you know, well, that was someone else. They snuck into the you know kitchen and took our cookies. And, and you'll get into this and you'll think this person is this pathological liar. And they're not. They're they're trying to cover up for a feeling of inadequacy that follows the ADD people around everywhere they go this sense of being out of sync with the world and discombobulated. And, you know, they're called mean names like lazy and um, other things. And, and stupid. So, I mean, stupid. They're called – I mean, I, sure. I have a friend. I have a friend yeah. who uh, has a niece. I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, you grow up all your life, and you're compared to the other kids in the family, and all of a sudden, you know, you're the stupid one. Exactly. And they right. and, and many of them are not. They're not. All. Right. Uh, I yeah, my daughter is gifted and uh, has ADD, and and uh, so that's a really interesting combination. And so, if you don't help them learn how to manage those uncomfortable situations, and there's many others besides this one, they mm-hmm. tend to always jump to the fastest thing to solve the problem. And if I remember it, which is to just deny it. And if, and I think that is one of those where I had hypothesized they needed to have that checked. I can't remember exactly why, but I remember the letter you're talking about. And they were they thought the person was a pathological liar. Yes. I, I mean, it's really interesting. Uh, and this is what happens when there is so much information out there. And, you, you know, what we have is now a new level of education that happens in the family with all of these new psychological terms, right? Well, uh, and some are, of course, that being a good example, some <laughs> people think they're psychological terms, but there aren't really things that we see as commonly, uh, you know, multiple personality disorder. Uh, is awfully popular, and there are questions about whether it exists, but that's a whole other show. But there are a lot of those that that exist that get awful interesting for people. Uh, Let's take a moment and talk sex. Oh, that's uh, always good for a good, interesting discussion. And it's great for a nighttime show. You bet. Uh, And, you know, I'm going to start out in kind of an interesting place. And, again, my 93-year-old uncle... He's had been quite an influence on you. <laughs> He's a great guy, I, honestly, and he is. I, I, I could, we could do a whole show on, on my uncle Al and what he believes and how he fights for what he believes. Actually, that's what I le- where I learned it from. Well, we don't always thing. agree on the same things, but you know, we, we at least have a little gumption. One of the things that 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 came up in our in our family. And I was I was kind of interested that I saw it in your book as well. There's a whole dialogue now, open dialogue, on being a gay teen. Mm-hmm. It's on television. It's on Glee. It's in schools. We're going to the prom. 
And someone pointed out to me, and actually it was my uncle, I think, pointed out that that is not something that was visible or, mm-hmm. you know what I'm trying to say, ten, even Absolutely. 10 years ago, Dr. Dr. West, how are we handling this? Are we doing a good well, job? Yeah, you know, that's a good good show in and of itself. There's so much depth mm-hmm. there to plumb. The the uh, the overview is that that is a big change, and it's a societal change. If you look at polls in just the last five or six years, they've changed radically in terms of the the people who support gay marriage uh, or gay civil unions or gay relationships to begin with, and it's very much moved in the favor of the couples. And, you know, I work with a number of kids uh, who identify themselves as gay or bisexual, and even that has changed. I'll tell you how quickly it's changed. I wrote a column recently where I said whether you like it or not, whether you think it's wonderful or terrible, the very concept of labeling yourself with a sexual orientation is beginning to move to the passe. I I work with quite a number of people, probably half the people I work with that are in same-sex relationships right now do not self-identify themselves as gay. They self-identify as they're in love with a person of the same sex. And that's become quite an interesting change that, that is different than the generation of gay adults just above them. I think. So that's a, that's a whole new movement. And the acceptance, even amongst males, it's much more recent that males have begun to be open and self-identify. I know small schools around this. This is a university town, big university town, uh, University of Kansas. And there are many towns in Kansas around this university town, small rural communities where there are two or three guys in the high school who self-identify as gay or bisexual. So that is how in, how different this has been, and it's all in the last five or six years. And again, if you are, you know, depending on your beliefs, that's either a great movement forward or a terrible uh, fall back to sin. It depends on how you look at it. But I think it is very real, and it's very different, and kids are not uncomfortable uh, on average now with, with their peer group self-identifying. You're right, Glee has multiple characters, uh, actually statistically probably more characters on Glee than in an average high school are uh, involved in some kind of same-sex relationship. Yeah, they didn't want to, they didn't want to leave anybody out, you know, that's in a true. sense. I, I mean, and actually, I think that's what the show has said, you know, in some kind of interesting way. Um, it, it, this kind of leads me to a, a related or maybe not a related conversation, but another topic which is now hit the headlines and especially our pop culture. It's this idea of bullying, whether you are uh, my child is a bully or my child is being bullied. And I think for for many of the people, especially a couple of people that just emailed us in uh, around this show, they wanted to talk about this. They wanted to have an understanding of what bullying is. And it's an interesting dialogue that's surfacing. You know, what's the difference between standing up for yourself, uh, even to the point of fisticuffs, as somebody said, versus what we're classifying as bullying today? Another person asked this question, Dr. West, you know, isn't bullying the same thing as abuse? And they were referring to domestic abuse. And I said, you know what? I'm going to ask the good doctor this question. 
Well, it's such a good question. And I just was on the uh, NPR affiliate in Kansas City yesterday. I have a monthly show. I go on and do stuff, and this was what we did yesterday. And the switchboards were lit from the minute I sat down until I left. The switchboards were full. This is how important an issue this is for people. Now, I have a very balanced view of this. And and I one of the things I'm concerned about is that we have become very interested in this topic, and we need to be, but we have broadened it out into a very wide range of behaviors that go from being violent to somebody, which, you know, and intimidating and so on, which I think fits with what you were talking about, the bully, the traditional bully behavior. We've now broadened that out to include a lot of what I would call as kind of emotional terrorism behaviors. And social media is a, you know, a wonderful tool to be mean to people. And so I've kind of added some language as I'm talking about this to say that what we're really targeting is mean kid behavior. And it's a little easier to tell a parent your child is a mean kid to his peers than to say he's a bully. The minute you say that, we bring a parent in and sit him down as a teacher or administrator and say your kid's the bully, the, it turns off the neural pathways between their ear and their brain. They don't want to hear that. And so in trying to counter that, one of the things I've been talking with people about on these mean kid behaviors is what I call the three E's, which is to teach kids uh, empathy, ethics, and excellence in their behavior. And when you have a kid that's already advanced to the bully stage in your home or the mean kid stage in your home, I think this is one of the most serious issues that parents need to address and take the kid out of circulation until they can show a greater sense of ethical conduct towards others. Now, you talked about this issue of standing up for yourself. My view of this is that uh, you're not, I think a lot of people worry that they're raising these wimpy kids or something if they teach them this kind of conduct. Um, I was out watching eight-year-olds play soccer the other day, and uh, one of them was playing really hard and knocked the other kid over, knocked the wind out of him, and that kid went straight to that boy, it happened to be, on the ground, reached his hand down, and helped lift him up and check to be sure he was okay. Uh, That didn't mean he wasn't going to play hard. It meant that he treated that person with dignity and with a sense of fair play. To me, that's the metaphor you're wanting to use in life in general. We can all play hard. We can all elbow each other in the world, but we don't do it in a way or with the intent to do harm. And what bullying is about is an intentional desire to harm others or to move oneself around in the social hierarchy, scratch your way to the top, or at least keep yourself level in the hierarchy. And it doesn't matter if you've got to throw a few people under the bus. Parents need to respond very uh, strongly to that. And I always tell them there's a fourth E, and that is enabling. And that's the one you don't want to do, is right. enable that kind of behavior. So that's well, my quick treatise on bullying. Well, you know what? Here we go. As I mentioned it today on my show that we were going to talk about this tonight, we've got an instant message interface here that lights up and we're lighting up. I'll take one of these questions because it does relate to this. It's really kind of, uh, it's really a kind of interesting question. Uh, uh, hi, Dr. Pat. This is a great show. Hi, Dr. West. I don't have the book, but I'm going to get this book. Uh, well, rush, well, rush right now. Head we're going to go get, get it. it. Well, well, first of all, we need to give you Dr. West's website as well, and we'll do that. Here's my question. 
and this is from Judy from Kansas City. Here's my question. You're talking about bullying kind of the way that I talk to my therapist about my abusive husband. I have a restraining order on him. Are we looking at that kind of thing in terms of kids and teenagers in school? This is another good question. I, I mean, it sure is. On yeah, our show, wow. it, it, since that's a Kansas City person, I, and I would invite anyone uh, to get on my website and click the uh, tab for KCUR's up to date yesterday because we talked a lot about that and it will extend our conversation tonight. Right. We uh, we this whole idea of prosecuting. We actually had a prosecutor call in yesterday and we talked to her about it. It was very fortunate for us. And the the, uh, the prosecuting these things is really tricky um, for a lot of reasons because the minute you start moving towards uh, a prosecutorial model, you're going to cast a huge net and you're going to start collecting people that really are um, maybe not the worst offenders and treating them as if they are. I'm not saying there's not a place for it. I'm saying you use that carefully. And what we talked about on the air yesterday, I would like to see a lot more teen courts being used both in the juvenile justice system and in even in the schools where kids are adjudicating their peers as part of what we know in anti-bullying literature is one of the most effective strategies, which is peer influence. If you can make bullying really uncool in a school, then the bullies will stay out of it. If you make it the wrong thing to do now, kind of some of the simplistic versions of this is to put up a you know, a no-bully zone poster. Well, that that's not exactly winning the hearts and minds of the people. But if you have a system where kids are their own court system structured, uh, I think that would be a very effective response and it would avoid you bumping up all but the worst cases to the court system. And I think that's where the worst cases belong. But we've got to have some interim. The mean kid behaviors need to be taken care of by some less formal system, but one that's still pretty effective. And the prosecutor who called in yesterday really had worked a lot with teen courts and she liked that idea. So I'd like I to see more great. of that. Well, I want to make, let's make sure everybody has your website before we uh, go on here, because I've got a, another question c- coming in here related to this. But let's take a moment, let people know how they can get a copy of your uh, of your book and what your website is. Sure. The website is drwest.com, and that's dr-west.com. If you just if you forget the hyphen, you're going to um, go to the other Dr. West's website, and he will teach you all about a high-fiber diet. And while I endorse high-fiber diets, you probably won't get to get my book there. So it's dr-west.com. And then the books are available uh, most easily through Amazon. You can get them as paperbacks or you can get them on Kindle. And they're also available on Nook and through Barnes & Noble, although I am an Amazon guy. So I always push that first. And then anybody who's local can get them at Rainy Day Books in Kansas City or at Hastings and Lawrence since we had our Kansas City friend calling. And all of that information is available on the website. 
I want to just tell everybody that, um, you know, this book is so insightful. Dear Dr. West, Real Life Advice for Parents of Teens, um, that the, it's written with, uh, teen co-authors. And I want to say that this book is a go-to book for all of you out there that are wondering, oh, how am I going to handle the next thing that comes up? But you know what? Stephen Covey said something a, a, a bunch of years ago. You know, we listen to understand. Well, what Dr. West has put together, he's put together the dialogue so that we could at least get an insight into what the issues are and and that there are different sides to the story. So thank you, Dr. West, for doing that. It's brilliant. Well, you're very welcome. And I always say that if we didn't get it covered in the books, uh, my email is on there and we'll get it in the paper and on our blog. So if somebody's got follow-up questions after they see the books, we are happy to respond. And maybe they'll be in the next book. Uh, absolutely. Here's the uh, next question that's coming in. And we're actually going to skip our breaks tonight because uh, I can't get to all these questions coming in. I warned you that the, the switchboard yeah. would light up, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. And we actually have we have really smart listeners because they know that when they try to call in, they never get in. So what happens is we have two instant feedback modalities that they can send their questions in. It's great. Awesome. Uh, this is a question that comes in from, oh, actually, from one of my daytime Seattle listeners. And, and she says, Dr. Pat, looks like you're talking about it again, depression. Can you ask Dr. West to give us a sense of depression for teenagers? Is it different? Is there something to be, is there something to be said about it? Or is it like uh, the conversation you had today that there are just some teenagers that are going to be unhappy? I think this is a big topic. Uh, actually, we can do two hours on this topic because, you know, we're talking about something, Dr. West, that may lead to states of suicide and other things. I, I mm. wanted to ask you about this. I mean, if we could give our listeners here a sense of, of where depression is these days in the teenage world. Yeah, I think it's a great question, and it one of the things to take heart in, and I'm always careful how I say this because I do not want to under underscore undermine uh, an important point. But but mm-hmm. I do this a lot. I have worked with kids in crisis. Uh, I I know what the problems can be, and thankfully, teenagers are actually at a fairly low risk group for suicide. Um, by comparison to other demographic groups in our population. Now, they have a lot of suicidal thoughts and feelings, um, but fortunately, in the end, there's a much smaller number of actual suicides. Now, I will be the first to tell you I've worked many of those cases with survivors, so I certainly know that they are serious and important. But one of the tricks with suicide is that well, people will always, and we talk about this in both of our books, people will always want to have a list of warning signs. And the problem with warning signs is they create both a false sense of security, like I'll just watch for these things, and when they show up, then I'll know. And that's just not true. Four of the last suicides I've worked over the last few years, uh, the teenage friends and family members had absolutely no warning whatsoever. And so the problem with warning signs is for folks listening who have been through this, they they will often feel very guilty that they missed something. And this is frequently not the case. Uh, it's, It's very surprising. A lot of people really believe there's something you can see there. Now, the warning signs that are of some use, and we talk about it in the books, is that people who start giving away possessions or giving away their money or or doing something that's like 
terminal, terminating things in their lives, this is when you really want to watch. And so if kids are giving stuff away, uh, this is a, a worrisome sign. It's one of the ones that doesn't overlap with other things. Now, that said, depression is a really interesting problem in teens. I have a couple of theories about it. In general, I think you're probably right. We have tended to over-pathologize unhappiness in teenagers, and we're, we're pretty careful at my clinic about that. We have our own in-house medication management so we can control those things very easily. And what we find and, and this is what I call a Wessism. It, it isn't proven out all the way in the literature, but in general, clinically, what we have found is that depression in teens tends to be secondary to something else. It might be ADD. It might be a loss. It might be a feeling. It might be bullying. It might be a, a variety of things, and we try to find that first and one of the common ones we find is that there is often for teens nowadays primarily an anxiety disorder. So feeling worried all the time is very depressing. And people will misread that and think the teen is simply depressed when, in fact, it's what we call rumination. They worry and they think all the time. Or as I call it more jovially with a lot of the kids I see, a self-conscious teenage girl disorder. And I and I and we joke about it, but it's really kind of serious. They're constantly on edge worrying. That's pretty depressing. There's another mm. small cadre that are actually primarily depressed, but you really want to be looking at their social circumstance, divorce, you know, all those kind of things that can generate a lot of those feelings before you just assume it's what we would refer to as a primary or endogenous depression. Right, where there's an event that happens in somebody's right. life. Uh, or some other condition that's, mm-hmm. that's driving the depression, yeah. Uh, you know, th- this is, um, you know, for a lot of people, uh, the conversation about depression, I actually have a bunch of questions on it, but I think you really answered that really, really beautifully. Uh, one of the follow-ups that's coming in from, it looks like it's, uh, looks like it's Jen, uh, from Austin, Austin, Texas, that is. And you know, the question came in, a Dr. Pat. lovely town, by the it's way. It's great. Yeah. yeah, a beautiful place. I love it. Uh, hi, Dr. Pat. Uh, hi, Dr. Wes. Uh, Dr. Pat, you did a show, uh, you did a show, this is like little shorthand, it's like little text message uh, abbreviations. Uh, hi Dr. Pat, you did it, you did a show a couple of weeks ago and you were talking about how teenagers today are much, much more altruistic than perhaps you were as a child. Can you ask Dr. Wes if that is actually something he sees a lot of? I actually did a show where I actually uh, talked about the contributions of teenagers to the world. And so one of the things that had come up was this idea that we see a lot more young people uh, concerned about the planet and so forth. Do you believe that we have, you know, a generation or two or three that are altruistic by nature? Um, I, you know, I don't think anybody's altruistic by nature. I think that's mm-hmm. kind of a behavior we learn through that idea of ethics and mm-hmm. uh, empathy and excellence. I think altruism is a good uh, subset of empathy. But, but I, the question really is: Are we in a trend right now to where that is more important? And I, I too puzzle over this. We we have some chapters in the books about 
kids getting involved in politics. Uh, their both books have a chapter on planning for the future, and then another one on living in the real world. And we discuss things like the Virginia Tech shootings and the shooting. I was at the Holocaust Museum a week before that man. That guard was shot there, and we wrote about that and talked about how kids can think about the world around them and try to take in some of these things without becoming jaded uh, or so disappointed in authority figures that they don't you know, want to participate anymore in the society. So we see a lot of that. I, I, I certainly see those standout kids who are really wanting to give something back in a variety of ways. And then, unfortunately, I see a whole bunch of them who are just so overwhelmed and disappointed that they are, uh, you know, sitting at home with uh, World of Warcraft and their bong uh, tuning out. And we really need to reach out to those kids. And I, 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 I don't mean to get on too much of a soapbox, but I, it isn't that I think our uh, leaders, our political figures, uh, are speaking in a way to one another right now that encourages kids to feel much hope. You, know, you understand what I'm saying? Where yeah. the meanness in the media, the meanness in the the, the public discourse right now, and, and that doesn't make kids want to be givers and supporters and volunteers. And I think it's very disappointing. This is the generation we need to be encouraging towards altruism and towards civil uh, conduct, and we're doing kind of a rotten job of it. So maybe the kids will lead us out of it, but I'm worried that we're not leading them in the right direction in that. Boy, you've said a mouthful right there. Uh, I think we'll be able to take one last question, and it comes from Josh in L.A. Okay, Dr. Pat, when are you going to ask? The, when are you going to ask the question? Or actually, Dr. West, when are you going to answer the question about sex, drugs, and rock and roll? <laughs> <laughs> are they still around? Oh, yes. And by all means, get the books, and we answer them in there all over the place. Uh, you know. The like I say, I, I I have pretty good luck with the kids I see, talking with them about dating uh, ethically. Now I'm not going to say they rush out of my office and you know just hurl their ethical behavior at everyone in the world, but it's a dialogue they like to have, and I see a really diverse group of kids, um, and and they're interested in talking about it. I wish we were talking about that as a society. I'm not the, the the greatest druggie there was. I'm not. My kids that I see have to put up with a real um, snotty attitude about drugs. I think kids are using entirely too much marijuana these days. It is in no vague way experimental anymore, and it is very much a lifestyle for an awful lot of kids. And there's a new study out that indicates that it's something like, I don't know, 27% or something of high school kids are using marijuana. Those numbers are low. And I think that that is probably not that helpful. And strangely, um, this is a very controversial view. <laughs> I, I, that's one place the kids I see seem to really be frustrated with me is I will just not get groovy enough to to be down that road. And as far as rock and roll comes goes, I would prefer we return to the Nirvana era personally. <laughs> so <laughs> Uh, living in Seattle, I, I think, uh, I can agree with you, uh, on that. Uh, but I also grew up with some very cool rock and roll. And, you know, ironically, if we're going to talk about ironics, uh, yeah, the, the people that I really loved 
they pretty much did die from overdoses. I mean, you know, we're living here, you, you, you know, we're living in a world where our pop culture, what's on television really, you know, brings this, you know, information to the forefront. But I think what you said is really very important. I don't know if it's because as parents, parents are downplaying the marijuana uh, usage right now. I, I, I don't know what it is, but there really is a, a lifestyle connection, and it's the it's lifestyle connection to alcohol as well, don't you think? It's just that alcohol becomes much more obvious and and, and actually is easier to detect and catch, right? Well, uh, it is. It's much easier to get marijuana, frankly, than it is mm-hmm. uh, alcohol. I, I'll mm-hmm. tell you, we talk about it a little bit in the books, and I would never argue that parents are – you know, on top of this, because I think they're not. But more than that, we've done a really poor job of drug and alcohol education in this country. And uh, one of the things we've done is to equate marijuana with, you know, cocaine and heroin or whatever. And and as curmudgeonly as I am about it, I know good and well there's no comparison there. And so do teenagers. And they read all this government propaganda, and then they are, they blow it all off. And so the truthful statements that are in there uh, go right out the window with the propaganda. And so kids hear that and they invent their own propaganda. And their propaganda is, you know, what kind of idiots are you that you don't want to smoke all the time? You you must be missing out on this. You, you don't know what you're talking about. So, that we, so we've caused them to de- be distrustful of us as a society by being incredibly hypocritical about marijuana and uh, treating it as if it is the substantial equivalent of crack or something. And we just know that isn't true. And so we've caused us ourselves to have very low credibility and very low influence as a society over kids. They just aren't going to listen to that anymore. And there's some research that programs like D.A.R.E. actually teach kids how to use drugs uh, because they give them so much information. Um, So we've not done a very good job of that. Now, if you say, well, what would you do, Wes? You're so... You know, you're so full of criticism tonight. I think it's very difficult, and I think it would take a, a major overhaul of our entire drug policy to get that improved. For now, we're going to have to do it door-to-door in every living room and, and the values being communicated by the parents strongly as to what they believe. And that's yeah. going to mean they have to manage their own substance abuse issues. Yeah. One last question. <clears throat> And this actually falls in line uh, with what you're talking about and what we're talking about actually here, sex and drugs. And I'm going to leave rock and roll out for now. A question comes in from a mother from, uh, it looks like, Arizona. Hi, Dr. Pat. Please ask Dr. West. This is a great show. Please ask Dr. West. Are we making, are we getting, are we making our points with our teenagers around safe sex and how important it is? That's a great question. It is. It is a good question. And and we certainly are big on that in our work. And the teen book, uh, I think kids will get a lot out of uh, around that issue. I think we have to keep making that point. You have to start making that point when they're five or six years old and work their way forward. The, the best thing, I, if, if I have a minute to tell you this, I think I can illustrate it in a story. Please, please. Uh, my, my goddaughter uh, gets talked about behind her back all the time. If she ever tunes in, I'm in trouble probably. And she's going to be a junior at the University of Kansas this year. And back when she was uh, 16, 
she brought her boyfriend up for Christmas holidays, uh, and we went out to dinner, she and I and the boyfriend. And in the middle of uh, barbecue, because, you know, this is Kansas, we eat a lot of barbecue, uh, she uh, says, well, let's talk about birth control. And I look at the boy, and I thought he was going to throw up his brisket at that moment. And I said, well, is this okay with you? And he kind of nods, the scared nod. And so we had this nice discussion about birth control. Well, what the best part of that discussion was is that Chelsea could finish every one of my sentences. And that's because we'd started that conversation back when she was about, I don't know, nine or something. And she was very confident and very comfortable in that conversation. And eventually the poor boyfriend vaguely got there too. That's what you're shooting for in terms not only of the birth control part of it, but all aspects of sex. You want to help people protect themselves from disease, from pregnancy, and from the emotional hurt that can occur with unwise decisions. And so if parents want to try to make that that comfortable a conversation, you're having some barbecue, you're talking about sex, it's okay. And I know that's hard, but it wasn't always easy for me either. I've had to work on that as I work with kids and become comfortable with it. And it can be done. And that's when you know you've been that successful is when you have a kid who, in front of her boyfriend, wants to have a healthy discussion of that topic. And I'm always real proud of her for that. I love that. What a great way to wrap up the show. Uh, Dr. West, thank you so much. Uh, I want to just tell everybody, go to the website, drwest.com, and it's dr-west.com. Check it out. Also, you can get his book just about anywhere. Go to Amazon, Dr. Uh, Dear Dr. West, Real Life Advice for Parents of Teens. One last question. What's your personal message, Dr. West? What would you like to leave us with today? Well, I would like to say that every parent should, uh, should think about their own empowerment and their own ability to really make a difference in the next generation. Uh, it is never fourth down and 40 yards with teenagers, and I always like what Garrison Keillor used to say, nothing we ever do for children is wasted. They seem not to notice us, their eyes averting, but nothing we do for them is wasted, and I think that is a great sentiment. Absolutely, especially when they can remember five years after the event exactly what you've said (laughs) (laughs) so true i have a bunch of chelsea stories on that same topic sometime Uh, we could get uh, together uh, and don't be surprised uh dr west uh, if she isn't listening to all of your shows (laughs) (laughs) well it sounds like you've got a great audience and i've loved that this is one of the smartest discussions and i've done a bunch of interviews and this is uh Uh, one of the smartest discussions we've had, and I think your listeners are an astute bunch, and I'm impressed. Yeah, they're great. And, boy, they were ready for your your appearance here tonight. Thank you so much, Dr. Wes. Um, Wow, Dr. Wes uh, Crenshaw, the book is uh, Dear Dr. Wes, Real Life Advice for Parents of Teens. And he is absolutely right. I've said this before. You are the best listeners on the planet. It is such an honor to come to you 10 hours a week and do what we do, bring you the information and the kind of conversations that you all love. You inspire me. We'll see you next time on The Dr. Pat Show. It's stepping down your soapbox is way too high overgrown. 